welcome to episode 17 of Better with Paul. Now, today we have a guest who's been described in the media many different ways. I've seen him called one of the most powerful people in the UK. I've also seen him being called one of the most powerful people in Africa because of his interest there. And I've also read that he is considered to be one of the most powerful people in the world. Now, I always find it interesting what other people think of other people, but it's more important to find out what people think of themselves, right? So I asked our guest in this interview how he views himself, and he considers himself one of the luckiest people in the world. Today's episode is absolutely amazing. It's not only a masterclass on how to do well in business, it's also an education on how to do good in life. After the break, it's an honor to share my conversation with the luckiest man in the world, Sir Kenneth Oliza. I think I mentioned this to you before we tried this, you know, previously is that I'm, I'm incredibly excited to, to, to dig into your background and dig into your thoughts because you're someone who I, especially when, once we got to London about three, three years ago, I would periodically see on television and I never connected exactly who you were your background, and also your business prowess mm-hmm. until I participated in an uh, Alito Foundation. And it actually wasn't until I saw you give the keynote there that I connected it all and connected who you were. So Paul, uh, so Paul you can't be accused of being a quick learner then. Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> I'm slow. Yeah. I'm very slow. <laughs> But, and, and, and I will tell you, you know what actually most impressed me out of all of that is your oratory skills are incredible. You have the ability to connect to all people. And, and, and I think that's probably part of your success in life and, and in your business. But so I want to unpack all of this, right? I want to unpack all of it. But, but here's where I would love to begin. Yeah. Is, you know, there are a lot of people listening, watching who... Are, may not know who you are, right? Whether they be in the U.S., the Caribbean, uh, throughout different parts. I think there will be a lot of people who don't know. That doesn't hurt my feelings. It's probably true. No, no. For the two, could you give us just a snapshot of all of the things that you currently do right now, all the projects that you touch? So I think probably the best way to describe what I do now is to break it down into the the, the for business and the pro bono. I think that's probably the best possible split, apart from family. And I, I should do all the family first, and they are the most important. I'm married, and I've been married to the same person as has she for the last <laughs> forty something years. Um, we have two wonderful daughters who married two amazing men, and they have lots of great children. There are half a dozen between them. So I'm a happy grandfather, happy father, proud father-in-law, etc. And I, and we do a lot of things as a family. Together, we speak often, we talk to each other. And our younger daughter worked with me for eight or nine years. I should know how many. She'll be really cross when she hears this, but eight or nine years before she went on to for some top job in Unilever. So I had the joy of working 
with one of our children. And paradoxically, possibly coincidentally, the other one, the elder daughter, who is an entrepreneur in her own right, um, was building a house. And so she and her husband and family live with us. So I had this great period of my time when I would leave home in the morning and say goodbye to my elder daughter and go meet my younger daughter in the office and come back in the evening, there was my elder daughter, so, and, um, and et cetera. So, so family is really important to me um, for all sorts of important reasons. And I, and I think when people look at life, I, I feel very sorry for people who actually have bad families, have no family, have bad relationships in their family, because there are not many joys greater than that kind of unqualified love that a family can can bestow on, on each other. So my family is that, is that first piece. Then I do these two other big activities. Activity one is I have to make money, so this is quite important in, in the world. But I, as I say, asked me the other day uh, whether I came from a wealthy background. Well, if I did, I'm, it missed me completely. <laughs> We grew up, I grew up with no money at all. My mother had no money. I left university with an overdraft, etc. Um, so, so what I have today, I, I've been able to accumulate over time. And from a business perspective, I, one of the astonishing things that I have discovered is there's, there are a lot of misunderstandings about business. I spoke to some young people, as in you know, early 20s, uh, which at my age is young people, uh, but young, young people about business. And I gave a speech about what I did and how I'd done it. And, and so when I finished, the young man who was organizing it said, really interesting hearing what you had to say. But to be a successful businessman and to have done what you've done, you must have you know, broken the rules a few times, killed, you know, stabbed a few people in the back, uh, tricks and other people like that. You know, how do you feel about that? And it's a really interesting, I was cross about that, but it was a really interesting question. Because I said, well, no, I'm, I, I'm very proud to say, no, I've never done that. That's not how I operate. But much more importantly, it's not only not how I operate, I don't operate with people who behave like that either. I've met them, and I have nothing to do with them. And, and I belong to a very large number of people who've demonstrated that the creation of wealth isn't about a zero-sum game where you're stealing from other people. The creation of wealth is creating something that didn't exist before. And, and I belong to what I consider to be that noble set of people in business. I've been in the IT industry forever. Actually, as I like to joke, I think I've been in the IT industry since before there was one. And I realized I wrote my first line of code, actually, when I was in school, in high school, um, oh, wow. in the sixth form. And there's, and there's, a reason, there's a story behind that as well. But anyway, I wrote my first line of code then. And I said, so when was that? I realized it was 50 years ago. Wow. At, at wow. Which one I couldn't do any more thinking. I just sat looking out the window. I can't believe I'm so old. I've been doing something for 50 years. So I've been in IT all, all the time. And it wasn't a big strategic decision to go into IT, I have to say. In my uh, sixth form, which is the year, the final year in high school in the UK, I was uh, faced, as was everybody else, with a choice of options on what to do for what was called, I've forgotten, the, the uh, optional period or something, which is Friday afternoon. Now, those of you who can remember what it's like to be 16, 17, 18 and Friday afternoon, basically it's the weekend. So what you don't want to be doing is studying double Latin or something. Anyway, we were given these options of what we could do. And I remember, it, for me, it was boiled down to you can either go cross-country running or you can go to the local university and learn to write computer programs, bracket, whatever they are, close bracket. And I remember thinking, so cold, wet, miserable collective showers or sitting in the warm, drinking coffee, doing whatever computer program is. didn't take me long to decide I would go and do whatever it was. That's how I got into the IT industry. I worked for IBM in my year off, and then I got a scholarship from IBM when I was at Cambridge, and then I worked for IBM, and then the rest is a matter of public record. But I end up now in the 21st century 
where I've drifted away from writing code, although I do occasionally mess around with macros and things and I'm annoyed with something on my computer. So I haven't entirely lost the skill. Actually, I don't think my skill has got to be better either than it was 50 years ago, nor have I developed my skill. But but I've realised over time that there is a very important overlap, a Venn diagram of te- technology wealth creation and money. And the combination of the two is the industry that I operate in now, which I call technology merchant banking. But in essence, what we do at my company, we help people who've got the the key assets to create real wealth out of technology. But we help them do the planning, the strategy thinking, the implementation. We use our network to connect with people. We help raise money. We help them implement the strategy. So we are bankers in the sense that we put at risk our own wealth. We have balance sheet assets that come, i.e. shares, that come from the companies that we're helping as well as fees. And and so we are lockstep on trying to create real value out of the things that they are And this is restoration partners, right? Restoration partners, that's right. And that's that's my core activity, really. And then our model, our business model, is to help a client. We will often, I or one of my colleagues will sit on their board uh, so that we're there in the cockpit as opposed to being a management consultant advising them. As I say, what? We're happy to be paid in equity on success rather than fees. So we're not management consultants. We are very much in the success-based banking model. But because we get paid in equity, we care about the long-run success of their business. And so I have a question in terms of that number one category, right, of, you know, basically restoration partners. You have equity stakes in various companies. You sit on the boards, et cetera. Not to get into your pockets, Sir Kenneth, but this is a question that comes about a lot because we often hear about what's you know success and the success is relative can you give us just a a rough estimate of the equity stake in terms of the valuation of the of of of, of the equity stakes across the various companies so i'm an englishman and we never talk about money we consider it to be deeply vulgar to talk about money <laughs> and although i'm not a politician i am a diplomat i think so i, so I I respect you, Paul, and therefore must answer your question. And I need to do it as an Englishman without answering the question. Okay. So I think perhaps the best way to do it, and it allows me to give you a segue into the other half of how I spend my life, is a few years ago, my wife and I made a large donation to my alma mater, Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, uh, to essentially buy the library, which is a new building. Uh, we had a useless library, a horrible, miserable old cave of the library before, and that was a real problem for a 21st century student. And all the other colleges, very competitive in Cambridge, had better libraries. Well, they had libraries and we had a cave, so they had better libraries than we had. And we knew the college ran an appeal, and we were the people who basically did the big uh, uh, cornerstone, uh, the largest portion of it, for building the library. And because it's a matter of public record, I can tell you we gave them £2 million. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. As I left that college in 1974, an overdraft, I felt that was something, some way of saying thank you for what they've done for me. So there you are. I've given you a number now. I have to go and have a cold shower. (laughs) That's that's very similar. I just interviewed Lloyda Lewis, who is the wife of the late Reginald Lewis, the first Mm -hmm. black person to build a billion-dollar business. He gave $3 million to Harvard Law. So I see... Excuse me, Thomas. Dollars, yes, do- is it dollars. All right, you, you gave two million pounds. Yes, thank you. Okay, it's an important point. His his net worth was four hundred million US. So I'll 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 stop there. I'll stop there with the, with the comparisons. But but I tell you what. But 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 I, I appreciate that because in the reason and, and just so you know the the reason why I always push hard on asking about the numbers is because 
it's interesting. I grew up in a household where my father, for the first, I think first maybe 10, 12 years, he, would, he wouldn't necessarily talk about money, right? And then I got to the point where I was 16 and I would ask, I would say, how do you expect me to know about money mm-hmm. if we're not talking about money? And I'll never forget, he turned around and he showed me his paycheck. Mm-hmm. And that was a light bulb moment when he showed me his paycheck because I understood I, mean, I understood what, how many, how much taxes were being taken out. I understood. I was, I'm like, what is this? You're only getting half of, you know. But, um, but so that that's that's the reason why I asked. But I respect, I respect your position. And as you said, that donation lends itself to the second chunk of your life, which, from what I read, what I understand, is probably where you spend more of your time on the philanthropic side. Yes, I'd certainly spend all my, definitely spend all my time. Uh, there, it needs a lot more work than, than the other side. So, so it's, I have a very simple philosophy. I, actually, I, I should turn this on its head. You saw the uh, presentation I gave to the Lito Foundation. One of the great things about the, the sort of world that I now live in, which is a very long way away from one that I started out in, is there are certain privileges that people in my position can accumulate. And one of those is to get a coat of arms. Anyway, you get to my stage of life, you can go to a place called the College of Arms and petition for your own coat of arms, which I did some years ago. So I have an official coat of arms as opposed to one that I would have made up as a boy when I thought I was a knight uh, in, in prospect. So anyway, so I have a coat of arms, and my coat of arms is covered in all kinds of interesting things, which means in battle we should be recognisable early on in the, in the skirmish, but have a motto. And the motto is the important point here. And my motto is quite simple. It's do well, because that's what my mother insisted on. Whether I was good at things or bad at things, I at least had to try and do my best. So do well is one half of it. And the other half is do good. So do well, do good is the Alyssa family motto, which is now entered in a book in in watercolour and other uh, paints, in a book in a, in a vault in the College of Arms, and will be there for oh. willing forever. And it joins, it joins many hundreds of years of other coats of arms, and it's unique and so on. So do well is my business objective and do good is my pro bono one. And I see them as equally equally balanced in terms of one's responsibilities. Now, remember, I'm hugely privileged. I, I've arrived at a stage in life where I can say these things. You know, I'm not struggling to make ends meet. You know, I haven't got ill family. I mean, it's, you know, I'm really, really lucky. And, and that's the point really Paul, underlines so much of what I, I believe in, which is people who have luck have a sacred duty to share it with the people who are less fortunate than themselves. I think that there's some elements of you creating that luck. So I still want to go down and unpack your career, but let's just stop right there. And I want to find out from your opinion, how much of that luck did you create? And if so, how did you create it? Because all of us could stand to get more lucky. You know what I mean? So so, so I'd love your thought on that. Well, I think I used to think that luck was equally distributed. It clearly isn't. Because if you get, I don't know, if you get some life-threatening cancer and you're dead within three months, nobody can say that's fair or it's your fault or anything. So luck is clearly not evenly distributed. And that's quite important because there is a view, I say this carefully, there is a view I would say, can I call it the American view, which is if you're lucky, woo, lucky you. If you're unlucky, that's tough bananas. Whereas I belong to a different group, which has a different philosophy, which says if you're lucky, you have to share it because you can never know. You can never know how better things could have been if you haven't tried to do that. And keeping it for yourself is a bad thing. But I know a lot of people, I've met a lot of people, who essentially reject luck when it's offered to them. 
And that and this one of the lessons we give as a Lito Foundation is to is to accept the generosity of strangers. Now, this, we're living now in the time of COVID, and in, in London, one of the things that I've been doing, we haven't got to it yet as Lord Lieutenant, is writing letters to small charities in London that do amazing things for the marginalised, the disadvantaged, and so on. Now, these are people who get up every day for a cause to help other people. They're not helping themselves. They're making no money from it. There's nothing in it for them. But they're out there to help other people. I think they are in the majority of the human race. And even if we're not in the majority, we need to stick together to help everybody else. Now, the point you asked me, though, was about whether you create your own luck. And there's all those great lines about Caesar and my lucky generals, all that stuff, which is clearly true. But I think it's about not rejecting opportunity when it comes. And if you walk around with your eyes open and are, are open to opportunity, guess what there's more about than if you've got your head down and you're, and you're not looking. But, you know, Sir Kenneth, if, if I can ask you a question on that, but also just, just so, so, so you, this is something that you learned growing up, right? Clearly, the idea that there are people in this world that are here to help us, right? And, and I would argue, because this is how I think, I'm assuming this is how you think, is more people in the world are here to help versus harm us, right? So that's one. The fact that if you see something wrong, fix it, right? And then also this idea of, uh, but I guess that's also the idea of justice. That's really what, what your what your mom was was underscoring. Yeah. So so let's let, let's let's unpack some of this, right? I love the do well, do good, right? Now it's interesting because Alito, you've designed to it feels like to almost focus on you forty years ago, right? Fifty forty to fifty years ago. This is you forty fifty years ago because you didn't come from a privileged background single parent household, grew up with your mother, right? Yep. And talk to us about some of the values that you believe were instilled in you at that time. Because in my opinion, talking to people who I consider to be world-class, I consider you to be world-class, right? Is that there typically are moments within childhood that impact the future, you know, that, that impact, that impact who we become as adults, right? Uh, what what can you recall? One or two of those moments, and what was the impact with regard to your values? So we had we had nothing growing up. I mean, my mom was a, a jobbing bookkeeper typist, so she did things like typing theses, PhD theses for people uh, in the days when it was done with a typewriter. She did bookkeeping for people and so on. And so she, I guess she was a temp uh, in into modern in modern world, although that wasn't what they were called in those, in those days. Um, and and we lived hand to mouth, and uh, there was. I mean, we, I don't think I ever went hungry in the in the real sense of you know, days going by without being fed. Although amazingly, there are people in London today who go hungry. So it's you know so much for progress in some senses. But I do remember I mean, we didn't have any of the things that one takes for granted. We didn't have a refrigerator. We didn't have a telephone. Didn't have a television. We didn't have any of those sorts of. I remember when my mother brought the radio a radio home for the first time. So and that was hugely exciting and be able to do that and, and so on. So so my so my mother's view very much was actually we'll make do with what we've got and we'll therefore we'll get out. We, you know, we went for walks and we so I get excited going for walks in the countryside and seeing flowers and bulbs and things because my mother would take that's how we she entertained me. So so we did well in that sense. And my mother was bright and intellectual. So actually, we did have a piano, 
which I was useless, I have to say. But I never, she did try to get me to play the piano. I did my best because uh, you would have to do your best with my mother, but I just wasn't very good. But we had a piano long before we had a radio, for example. So my, my mother was very focused on education was, was key. Um, and she was a big fighter as well. So my mother had a, she had a complete view of life was either right or wrong. If something was wrong, it needed to be rectified. Mm. I'm not one thing to, I forgot what age she was now, but perhaps in her 40s or 50s as she was fighting her way to whatever she was fighting. At the time, I said, Mum, you know, if you learn to prioritise your battles, you know, seeing dog dirt on the street and the government failing to do the right thing with the tax system, you know, you, they're not the same. And if you perhaps let the dog dirt go and just dealt with the government, you know, we might make the world a better place and you live longer. I remember my mother dismissing that. She made it to nearly 99, so it was a stupid thing to say. So just generally, she just fought all the time. Um, she was very quick to fight, I have to say. I, you know, she was the kind of person you don't want to meet in a, not that she was a drinker, but you wouldn't want to meet her in a pub. You know, she was that kind of person straight into fisticuffs. So, so I also learned that when you see something that's wrong, you have to deal with it. And it's really important that you deal with it, because if you don't, it won't be dealt with. And it's it's a, it's such an easy thing to say. So that so that activism, uh, I certainly inherited from my mother. So and I I stand, I think proudly really on the platform that she created. Or things are either right or wrong. If they're wrong, they need to be righted. And you don't mess around compromising and letting things off. So I I am legendary in the UK for having stood on all kinds of battles. Uh, I had a big fight over UK corporate governance and a FTSE 100 company, which was going to hell in a handbasket because the, the people who had owned it and then floated it didn't really concede it was a public company. They thought they still ran it. And they forced two of us, all forced two of us all the time about corporate governance issues. And eventually he and I were fired um, by the company, which means I hold the record of being the first ever director of a FTSE 100 company to be fired at the annual general meeting. My mother will be proud of me for that because that's the sort of thing that my mother would have, would have done. Uh, it led to me coining a great expression which was more Soviet than city to describe the way that Sir Richard Sykes and I were dealt with at the time. And that's now, I've trademarked it. It's used so much by so many people. You know what's interesting? I saw that in my research on you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's not all fun to be a nice person. And, and I, I have to say this for everyone listening on audio, uh, Sir Kenneth is not <laughs> blue eyed blonde hair, right? He's not. But you you bring up he's not even he's not even tall, I, you know, honestly required you can see <laughs> I didn't want to touch the tall. I don't know how you know, yeah, I get out of the way in case my wife listens good. She'll she'll say, Well, what is that tall nonsense? <laughs> but so you bring up another point that I have to, you know, pull back. So you know, I'm, I'm on this mission, as I mentioned, interview world-class folks. And I've been interviewing, I, I'd say, hundreds of world-class, in particular, Black men and women. There's a commonality I've found in the Black men I've interviewed. I've interviewed Kobe Bryant, right? Uh, Tyler Perry. Oh, can I just point out, he is tall. He's tall. Kobe Bryant's tall. Right. That's the meaning of tall. He is tall. He's tall. Tyler Perry, Byron Allen, right? These exceptional people, and you know what the uh, 50, uh, Curtis Jackson, Fifty Cent, right? You know what's interesting? They all, and I told them this, they all smile, profusely smile, profusely smile. I interviewed a gentleman uh, in the UK who's one of the most influential Black people I've ever met in the UK. His name Carl Loco, right? Mm -hmm. Carl Loco, and Carl, ex gang leader. 
of South, you know, uh, uh, Brixton, right? South London. And he smiles all of the time. And he said he would use the smile to disarm. Mm -hmm. This, I think, fits hand in hand with what you're saying, is that it's not simply about not even appearing angry, but the, the opposite is, is it's really appearing that you're happy. I mean, is it, is it, because I feel like it's so simple, but yet that's incredibly powerful. But all the people you listed, Paul, have got lots of reasons to smile. I mean, we are, we are some of the luckiest people on the planet. So it'd be really odd, or there must be people who do this, but it must be really odd to go around being miserable when we've all achieved, been given, been bestowed with the things that we, that we have achieved. I have a lot to smile about. Sure. But even in the Carl Loco case, yep. here's someone who, when he was in the streets, living in the council estates in Brixton was still smiling all of the time. Um, and, and, and so it's one of these where I, I could see that a lot of the luck came from your demeanor. Yeah, I, you're, you are absolutely right. First of all, there's a, a photograph of me aged eight or nine, which I use in the Elite Foundation speech which I give each year. And I am precisely that. Little boy, huge, big, happy smile. And it's it's not a false smile. It's not a posing smile. It's just happy. I mean, I, my childhood was happy. I mean, so I, I have I do have a lot to smile about. But I could also have a lot to be miserable about. You know, I could choose to be a miserable, cussed old, old person if I chose. Lots of negative things have happened in my life, um, not least of which is being fired from, from the Football 100 company. And it's only one of the many times I've been fired, I have to say, as well, for standing on matters of principle. But but the point is, there are two ways to look at it, aren't there? Half bottle, half full and empty, and all those other things. It's, it is to do with, between your ears, how do you how do you view things? If you follow your own argument, I, and obviously you do, if I follow your argument, rather, you can follow your argument or not, Paul, it's your decision. <laughs> if I end your argument, there are lots of people with unbelievable negative things happen to them, and they're still cheerful, and they still smile, and they still worry about other people. So so it's not actually about your condition that decides whether you smile or not. You're absolutely right. It's something that, that makes us think about ourselves. And, yeah, I, if there's a message that we can share with others, is if you have a choice between being a miserable, cussed old thing or being a happy, cheerful woman, it's a lot better to be the latter. Yes, absolutely. A lot better, a lot better. So let, let's get into IBM, right? And I feel like IBM was a pivotal part of your career. Oh, definitely. So, so, so talk to us about your time at IBM, what you learned, you know, what, what, what you took from that experience. So IBM, it, it's, I mean, it's hard to imagine now uh, what it was like, because it, it's a pale shadow of the business that it was back then. But IBM was, we, we were on a mission. We were like the Jesuits populating the world only with computers rather than with the Bible. We we were just on a mission. And uh, One of my colleagues in IBM, who's still a, a, a close friend, used to say to prospects, don't forget, IBM stands for I bring magic. Wow. We were so confident in what we did. And we, and we looked at the competition with disdain. And we just moved through the UK, selling computers, transforming businesses and lives. We were, we were on a mission as close to God as you can possibly be, selling hardware and software and services to people. And the culture inside the business, and of course, there, I mean, it was, a, it was a normal distribution of culture, but not the core culture of IBM, it, it was as close to religion. But it's, you cut me open, you'll find IBM all the way through. And 
many of the business values that I learned, I, I learned at IBM. I just looked at my bookcase the other day. I've got the IBM Code of Conduct from 1975 or six or something. You know, and we took these things really, really seriously. Whereas companies today, there is a Code of Conduct. On the, it's on the website. You know, ours is really serious. We had a thing in IBM all that time ago called the Speak Up, which is if you thought there's something wrong with what was happening in your in your company, your job, customer relation, whatever it happens to be, you filled this thing in and it went off to somebody really senior who then looked at it and decided whether action needed to be taken, investigations and stuff. So whistleblowing, but but for the mission as opposed to call trouble. It was such an innovative, powerful business. So yeah, informative. Absolutely. So so you were a product marketing manager towards the end of of your tenure. Then a salesman and then a, a product manager. Yes. Okay. Now in that time frame did you meet your wife? No, no, I met her at university. Oh, you met her at university. Yeah, don't waste your time at university. There are partners to be found. So you met her, but then you were married after university while you were at IBM. Yes. yes. Okay. All right. So, so question there. That had to be true. I don't know why I made. I didn't mean to sound confused about that. Yes. <laughs> That was a different yes. That, that was, had to happen. No, I just think about it. Yeah, of course. Yes, how else would it be? So, I so, might have before I met her. No, that's one option. <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting. That was an interesting yes. Now, you started the conversation talking about the importance of stability of family. Yes. And I absolutely love that. Absolutely love that. And so the question I now have to ask is, do you believe that the decision to marry your wife, right? She had a decision to marry you. You had a decision to marry her. Do you believe that that decision was the most impactful decision of your professional career? Well, I didn't really see it as a professional action. In the sense. <laughs> maybe, maybe in American, the word professional means something different. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no, no. Follow, follow me. I'm thinking the bearing of the relationship. So the fact that you chose her, she chose you, and the result of that choosing each other, the stability that it laid, the support that she gave you, all of those things were, 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 were important in the success of your career. I'll give, you, uh, I'll give you an example. Is that, you know, oftentimes people say behind every successful man is... A surprised wife. <laughs> I don't even know that one, right? Right? Is 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 you know is is a supportive etc. Wife? Was that the case for you? Do you do you believe? And also too, I'll, I'll even throw in another quote: is Sheryl Sandberg, right, COO of Facebook, said that um, you know prior to her husband's death, unfortunately, her his untimely death, that he was the most important aspect to the success of her career. Her mm -hmm. What's, what say you, Sir Kenneth? Well, so, so the, there are two kinds of people, aren't there? Those who like to be solo and those who like to be in a team. And if you like to be solo, and there are people, you know, mountain climbers, I mean, there, there are lots of things that people do because that's their personality. And it's not really a, a team view. I'm, I'm much more sociable than that. So no, I'm, so I'm a team. I'm not very good at sport. I point out if anybody tries to recruit me to something, but I'm a team player. So at work, I'm a team player. At home, I'm a team player and so on. And you choose the, the, the you, your colleagues, as it were, in the team, or you choose the team because of the colleagues that are going to be there. 
Actually, I've got ordered with a bit more care than perhaps I did. A little bit more heads and a heart, which is possibly a mistake. But but a if you if one is lucky enough to have found the right person to spend the rest of your life with, you know that's. A, I mean, we talked about luck earlier. That it's hard to imagine much more, much better, a better example of luck than doing precisely that. I belong to a group of people again. Most of us are married to our first partners. So so I belong to. You know, and we're all friends, so there must be a reason why we sort of all found it. We must have shared value or magnetic something or whatever it happens to be. But, but so that stability is yeah, clearly wonderful. And I come, come obviously from an unstable family before, which, by the way, blows away a myth that if you come from an unstable family, yours will be unstable as well. I think that after 44 years, I can say that's statistically inaccurate uh, or unproven. But, I, but I, and I look at my children and their relationships with their partners, and it, it's and what would the alternative be? It, now, if you make a mistake, which is, of course, easy, because how can you know at age 22 or something that this is the right person for you forever? In fact, we, we were talking, we weren't joking about it the other day because we don't joke about this, but we were talking about him. But we're looking for our wedding photographs for some reason that doesn't matter in this conversation, but positive. And then, and then we talked about what it was like when we got on the honeymoon. The difference between the two is that these happy, radiant faces at the wedding because it's all this big party. And then you wake up the next day, and this person next to you is going to be with you for the rest of your life. And uh, there's actually a photograph hanging up in our bedroom of Julia dressed, uh, but in the morning with a "What have I done?" look on her face. And uh, of course, it's like that. What what have you done? But then there's a decision, isn't there? Am I committed to it or not? And it's not easy. And uh, you know, people claim that being married is easy, and I, I question that's true. It's actually quite hard. Two people, you've got to keep making compromises, finding things, changes, and so on. But if you're in a team, if you view it as a team, you know, you don't betray your team members. So whatever you're doing in, in all of those trying to get the tectonic plates to work, the focus is on making it work rather than not making it work. And so, yes, it might be difficult, but it's worth it. But I can tell you, after forty something years, it's certainly worth it. That's powerful powerful advice you know i'm i'm uh, i'm halfway there so i'm 20 years uh into my marriage with my wife and i it's interesting that you likened it your relationship with your wife to a team mm. that's exactly how i view it is uh we're a team my wife and i uh and we're playing this game of life and yeah. we either win or lose together not yeah. individually but together uh, so i think that's powerful pardon the interruption but i have a big announcement my wife and I have just launched BWP Connect. That's Better With Paul Connect. And we would like to invite you to join us. So what is BWP Connect? It is a community that is not on Facebook, right? It's not on LinkedIn. It's not on any of the mainstream social platforms. It's a special place for us folks who are all like-minded to basically execute everything we're hearing in these podcast episodes. So we hear about professional skills that need to be built. We hear about personal skills that we need to build. We hear about community that we need to build. We hear about all of these things that we need to be doing. Where do we go to learn how to do them? That's exactly what BWP Connect is for. So I want you to go to paulcbrunson.com backslash BWP Connect. PaulCBrunson.com backslash BWP Connect and join us. So, all right. So, IBM, you're married now. You've learned about incredible things, you know, with regard to how to, how really how a sophisticated corporation works. You're a product marketing manager. You're, 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 you're expanding your network. 
What's the next move after IBM? Well, so the, the demise of IBM, it, or at least the, the, the negative slide of IBM, well, it's obviously not demise because it's still going, um, is worth a couple of words on, really, because there's a big, big business message here. I've come to realize from a business perspective, there are two very distinct business cultures. There is what I call the corporate culture and the entrepreneurial culture. And the corporate culture conforms to a cycle. You, there are results, they get measured, they get analyzed, they get reviewed. There's an action, there's commitment, they get more results, and they go around that cycle monthly, quarterly, annually. And everybody is, everyone's attuned to that sort of diurnal rhythm. And an entrepreneurial cycle has an idea, does some research, which might be perfunctory or deep, but does a little bit of research, puts a plan together, resources the plan, acts on the plan, discovers it did or didn't work, therefore goes around that cycle again. And this one goes around monthly, quarterly, and so on. In the entrepreneurial cycle, you go around it as often and as fast as you need to. So you may never go around it because everything's working, unlikely, or you might go around it 10 times in a day. Now, the trouble is, if you're an entrepreneur, those two cycles are incompatible. And that's one of the biggest problems that big companies that are corporate have because they can't innovate, because they can't deal with people that fail. Because you do something that doesn't work, that's a failure. Actually, no, it's not. It's an experiment that didn't work. If everybody in science said, I tried to do something, it didn't work, it was an experiment, therefore I'm giving up science, it would make no sense at all. The whole point of going around the entrepreneur cycle is to see what works and what doesn't work and, and to make rapid course corrections. The other one is to keep things going as they are. These are two quite different cultures. When I joined IBM, it was fighter pilot. So our mission was to convert every company on the planet to being an IBM customer. And, it, and because it was in the customer's best interest to buy from IBM, we were bringing magic. And so we just focused on doing that, finding people, persuading them, selling to them. I learned all my sales skills with IBM. I learned all my marketing skills with IBM. I learned a lot of other skills with them as well, my programming skills, long list. Anyway, so all that's what we did. But the U.S. Department of Justice launched an antitrust suit against IBM while I was there, nothing to do with me, but while I was there. And what happened then was that was an existential threat to IBM. It was going to be broken up, you know, all those things that happened in, the, in, in the trust and trust. And so what happened was the power in the company at the top went from sales and marketing, the customer-focused people, to legal and accounting, the compliance people. Because if we didn't comply, DOJ would come in and take advantage of that and there'd be no more IBM. And so I saw these gods, and these were amazing men, and women, but mainly men, lose the power to the legal and accountancy. Mm -hmm. okay. Began to shift from the entrepreneurial cycle to the to the um, to the to the business control cycle of the aircraft carrier one. And, so, and I found myself filling in a timesheet to say how I had spent my time as a salesman. So what you know? No, I mean salesmen. I don't get this wrong. But salesmen find it hard enough to fill in their expenses form, filling in a bloody timesheet. So when I was interviewed to go and have my uh, <laughs> to, to move from sales into marketing, I had the interview with a demigod. So this wasn't a really serious. This is a bloke I had to respect, but not fear. You know, sort of fear as opposed to real gods. So anyway, he, he told me why he wanted me to do this job, why he thought I was fit for it, all the other things like that, and, uh, and etc. And then he said, and he asked me some questions. And then at the end, he said, "And do you have any questions for me?" I was still a salesman at that point, and I said, "Do we have to fill in?" field reporting booklet in marketing and he said oh no no that's for people in the field you'll be in staff i said i'll take the job uh. so I took the job for with, with this chap mike 
I went back to my desk, I opened my cupboard, I took the 27 that I hadn't filled in for the last 27 weeks and put them in the bin. <laughs> because, and the idea that a salesman would sit down and work out by the hour what they had done in their day, it was ridiculous. And, and I'd given up making it up 28 weeks before and just accumulate, knowing that something would happen and it would be big trouble. But again, got lucky. I was liberated. I was helicoptered out and went to work into the market, in the marketing department. And where I learned my skills, which I think is probably my true profession, which is marketing, which is how you delight the customer with whatever it is you've got to sell, i.e. how do you fit it into them. So, yes, it was totally formative. And I've got friends left over from – I mean, I have friends not left over, obviously – Still around, but friends that I made in my IBM days. Uh, and I now know a few of the gods who are still alive. And, uh, they are, in fact, mortal. So you left IBM because of the change of culture, not necessarily because you started to think of yourself as an entrepreneneur. Oh, no, I certainly didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur. I was a career person. I, no, I, absolutely not. No, my entrepreneurial time came much later. So, no, absolutely not. It's a, somebody called up and said, would you like to come and interview for a job at this company called Wang Labs, of whom I'd never heard? And I was so pissed off, I said yes. Now, leaving IBM is like leaving a tribe. You know, this, you don't just go. It's really, really, really difficult. So the day of my interview with, at Wang, I'm in IBM's um, offices in the West End of London. And my interview is in the West End of London with Wang. And my purpose, reason to be in that office, was I had to give a presentation to the head of our division of IBM and some very senior people from the, we were in the mini computer division from the mainframe division about a bid that needed to be made to Barclays Bank. And I thought, I, I spent hours and hours and hours on this presentation and all these important people are there. And I'm presenting, and I'm thinking, why, why am I wasting my time trying to persuade my colleagues that our only product is the one that we should be bidding to the customer rather than how do we, I think, you know, this is no longer, this is no longer the place for me. It's no longer that we bring magic. This is now we are bureaucrats. And then I walked over Manchester Square. So we were at the office was just behind Selfridges, Manchester Square, and then the Wang office was on the next street. I walked a thousand miles <laughs> betrayal. It's like crossing from East Germany to West Germany. You know? I walked a thousand miles through Manchester Square to the interview at Wang Labs. And my career took a, a lurch in the right direction. Wow. All right. So you're at Wang Labs now. Wang Labs at that point, at how long have they been founded? At, at that point, oh, forever. Dr. Wang started Wang in the 50s. I in think. the 50s, okay. Yeah, and okay. we're now in 1980. So, okay. interesting. And so, you were, all intents and purposes, you were, you're now a competitor to, to, yeah. Yeah. to IBM, right? So, you're working for the enemy. You're working for yeah. the enemy right now. Oh, no. I went from East Germany to West Germany. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's disgusting. All right. So, now, how long are you at Wang? And then, what's the next career move? From Wayne. Right. So I was, I was at Wayne for 12 years and I was I went as a product marketing manager, so pushed across for the mini computer, which did in fact compete with uh, with IBM, but was much better. Uh, but we weren't as good a company in, in terms of selling, but it was so exciting. Wang well, in the book was written about Wang's demise. Somebody described it as a non-stop party, occasionally interrupted by furious bouts of work. And actually I think that really describes the culture. It was so Unbelievably exciting compared to IBM, which is I said. So we were back in the entrepreneurial universe, very, very much so. But again, Dr. Sandy, Dr. Wang became ill and died. And, and having cocked up the um, succession plan. So, so he wanted his son, Fred Wang, to take over as president of the company. 
uh, from the man who was, had been president for a very long period of time, which may or may not have been a good idea, but the implementation of it led to a war, a civil war inside the company between basically the guy who hadn't got the job anymore and, the, and Dr. Wang's people fighting all the time. And I, actually, I watched the Chinese culture versus the American culture, which I now am living through again in my Huawei roles. Watched, I watched that being thrashed out in uh, in real time. But Dr. Wang then became fatally ill. I, he would have soldiered, I had no doubt. Man was a genius. Became fatally ill and passed. And, and then we management consultants and corporate execs, all those people came in from the outside, had no love or association with the culture, took over, and it went bust. Mm. Uh, it's a sad story. So, so it went bust while you were still there? Well, technically, uh, no. No, it went bust on the day I was fired. So, <laughs> okay. so I, no. Well, I didn't realize this. So you were fired. They came mm. and they fired you. Yes. Goodness, this is this is not the career that I thought we had, Sir Kenneth. Oh my God! <laughs> so so then, what what do we do next? Uh, well, I, we we cry. <laughs> we go and sit in the corner and cry. So so what happened was I didn't I didn't like the man I was working for. We we didn't have a good relationship. Um, it's probably a better way of putting it. And I decided I had to go because um, he wasn't going anywhere. And I, and I thought about how to go. And you can either go, as we say in this country, with a bang or a whimper. And I decided I was damned if I was going to go with a whimper. So I gave it a bang. And going with a bang meant finding some dramatic way of going. So not just getting another job somewhere, but doing something else. So I, I and my CFO cooked up a plan to do a management buyout of the piece of the business that I was running, was the European, African, Middle East business, which I was always being criticized as being cash consumptive, loss-making, et cetera, et cetera, and it wasn't. And we kept showing lots and lots of numbers showing that it wasn't. People go, oh, yeah, but, 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 but. So I said, well, okay, I've got a solution. I'll take it off your hands, you know, and I, even I'll pay you for the privilege of it. Now, I'd said with my CFO when we hatched the plot that it would take us six months to do one of two things. And I said, so, Tom, what do you think, where do you think we'll be in six months? And he was American. He said, we'll own the sucker. And, that. and I said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll be fired. It took longer for him to be fired than for me to be fired. We were both fired. So I was fired on the day that, cha- that Wang went into Chapter 11. Ah, but you you attempted the acquisition. So this is big. So then at Wang, at some point, you flipped from this kind of corporate mentality to an entrepreneurial mentality because you thought you, you could then run your own business. Yes. Uh-huh. I knew I could. You knew you could. Right. Exactly. You knew you could. Okay. So, so, so now... Let me just ask, what got you to that place? What got you to that place where you Think back to my mother. I just, the, the way the country was going, it just wasn't the country for me anymore. So it was no longer the world for me. So I thought I'll buy something, take this away. Keep, you know, I can keep jobs for my people that have been loyal to me over these years. All the rest of it didn't work with mine. So when you're fired, uh, for the first time anyway, I mean, after that, I mean, after, after, after the first time it gets easier. But the first time, lots and lots of things happen to you. One of the big things that happens to you is your self-esteem, one's self-esteem, takes an enormous knock. Because you don't know, I didn't know, whether Kenneth Sir, Senior Vice President of Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, Wang Laboratories, was what I was, or whether I was Ken. So you don't know what your standing is, and you don't know who's going to care, who's going to respond to you, etc. And so phew, down comes your self-esteem. And I, I give advice to people who've been in similar circumstances where after a long career, it's come to an end for one reason or another, not necessarily because they've been fired, but <clears throat> about just what happens to your self-esteem. Because 
it is the most precious asset we have is our self-esteem. If it's on the way up, it's great. If it's on the way down, it's not so good. If it's at the bottom, you're just living in a doorway somewhere. So, so there's all that trauma. Also, we were living in Belgium, hadn't yet moved back to London. It, it, it was all really complicated. And I, and I didn't have any money. They, they didn't pay me very much at all to, um, to go away. And also, Sir, Sir Kenneth, how old are you at this point? Because you were 10 years at IBM. Well, technically, 10 years and then 12 years at, at, at Wang. So w- what are we? Are... I was 40-something, 40 40. early. This, is, this is blows my mind. This blows my mind because when we look at the certain- It didn't do me much good either. <laughs> but really, I mean, really, th- this this blows my mind because when so many of us look at the Sir Kenneth Eliza today, we look at someone who the presumption is, you know, even though self-made, but self-made like one of these dot-com entrepreneurs where at 20, you were worth millions. So you are- in your early 40s, you're, you, you have no money. You're broke, right? Mm-hmm. You are just fired. You're now having to move back from Belgium to, to the UK. Self-esteem is where? Rock bottom? Well, traveling down. Traveling down. No, not rock bottom, because then you are living in a shop doorway. But traveling down and definitely going the wrong way. DY by DT of self-esteem, wrong direction. Uh, and at speed. And also, it's quite complicated because we—we, I mean, we had a little bit of money, we had some savings, uh, but they—they they were because they'd gone to Chapter Eleven, able to be really quite difficult over the settlement and all, you know all those all those other things. And I mean, there's some, but again, because because I think the underlying theme running through this discussion is about not missing the luck when it comes. I think that's probably the point. This is why I, I'm trying to put myself in your place, right? Early forties. Do you have children at this point? Oh yes, yes, both of them. You, you both, you, you. Have- Two, you have two lovely daughters. You're married, right? Early forties. You're broke. I mean, you're just fired. How do you turn this around? Well, the first thing I did, I called my former boss, who'd also been fired in the, but in a previous regime of firing. So he'd gone before the the chairman came. I called him and I said, I've been able to negotiate three months of sort of gardening leave where I can still use my office and keep my car until I relocated back to the UK. So I, it wasn't quite as bad as I just described. Um, what should I do? He was Australian, and he said, make as many long-distance phone calls as you can. Because <laughs> was it free? Yeah. So, that was really helpful. So, anyway, so I come back to London. It was the oddest thing. There, I'm in this huge building in, uh, in, 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 uh, on, the, on the road going out to the airport, Great West Road going out to the airport. But, you know, I've got a huge chunk of the top floor is my office. I've got a PA I've just hired because I was planning to move back to the UK. So she doesn't know me, doesn't know anything at all. Now her boss has been fired. So, so, and I would go there most days, and people wouldn't know how to deal with me. It was the oddest thing. Suddenly, I'm no longer their boss and the hero of the rest of it. And this odd bloke who's obviously an enemy because he's been fucked, but he's still there. So I get like a ghost. I get into the elevator, go up to my office, and people not want to talk to me. It was the oddest thing. But I followed uh, I followed Ian's advice and made as many long distance phone calls as I possibly could. I talked to headhunters. I and and I tried to manipulate, manage, massage my uh, self esteem. Really difficult, though. Really, really difficult. It's, I mean, I joke about it now. It was, a, it was a bleak period. And then I got a job offer. And I got a job offer to do the same job that I was doing for Wang, which is running Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, but for Dun & Bradstreet Software and not for Wang Labs. So suddenly, it's fantastic. I mean, it's the same salary, the same car, you know, all those things, same terms and conditions. Really, the only difference would be I would travel to Atlanta for every month meeting instead of going to Boston. 
So, you know, I'm off bed as well, A instead of B. And I remember I've got the job thing in front of me. I've said, yes, I'm going to do it. Headhunters happy. Everybody's done, moved on. Put my pen out to sign it. And I, and I have this imp that lives inside me. And this imp popped onto, on my shoulder. It only comes out from time to time, but it popped out and it said, so, you're going to spend the rest of your life working for great companies that someone else has created. And then it folded its arms and just looked at me. So I put the pen back down again. And I thought, if I'm ever going to start my own business, it has to be now. Mm. So I, home, I talked to Julia and I said, who was ironing or doing something domestic. And I said, well, it's something still happening. Or, you know, I'm Bradstreet software, Atlanta, where I stuff like that. And she said, whatever makes you happy. Now, could you just take this bin, do this, something else like that? <laughs> so, Making me happy wasn't quite what it did, but it was better than going to work for Dun & Bradstreet, although that would have been a, it was very kind of involved me the job. Can I ask a question there? Once yes. again, there shows you how you made the right decision. I think there are a lot, there are a lot of, there are a lot of wives, or should I say spouses, because it, d- it doesn't matter who, come home, yeah, who would say, what? You better go get that job, right? We need food on the table. We need, but she said, whatever you make, whatever makes you happy. Maybe she is in control of the imp that lives in you. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> All right. So so now, Dun & Bryce, so you decide you're not going to take the, that job. You're going to decide to start your own business. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do at that point? Uh, no, but it didn't take me long to come up with an idea. So once, you, once you've made the big decision, I suppose actually it could go either way. But once you've made the big decision, then you obviously have to have an idea. And this is quite an interesting point about wannabe entrepreneurs. I think a lot of people say you have to have a product or an idea and then you become an entrepreneur. Actually, you know, being an entrepreneur is a something. And, and m- one of my closest friends and my, one of my best clients, easily my best client, is a, is a UK entrepreneur called Mill Morris. And a lot of people say that entrepreneurs are people who got lucky ones. You know, they start a business, it goes dot .com, make it all that. And so, well, Mel's, Mel's got lucky six times, and his last one was Candy Crush, oh. but he's done five things, including you dates and other things before. And I'm proud to say I was with him on many of the of the exciting moments leading to those different journeys. So I think an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur rather than you have this idea and you be, et cetera. So anyway, so I my inner entrepreneur is liberated. So then you have to say, what are you really good at? Uh, or you might be able to sustain a business. And I, I used my tiny amount of money settlement, and it was a tiny amount of money, it was the absolute statutory minimum amount of money, to rent an office and keep my PA, who poor woman I just hired into there, because I felt a sense of obligation there, as my PA. So Leslie and I started in a basement in Knightsbridge in whatever this was, 1993, I started what was called Interregnum, by the time it got going. And I, and I thought, well, what I've observed in this huge explosion that's been happening, this is pre.com, but, but by a long way, but you could see the, the trend was, in because I worked in America, this combination of venture capital and, and marketing and technology. So I haven't got any money. So there's no point in me claiming to be a venture capitalist. And I know a few and they haven't offered me a job. So it's not going to be venture capital. So I'm a marketeer. So I invented the term venture marketing. And my idea was we basically do what I do today, which is help people build their businesses, stick to the strategy. But by putting the word venture in it, it meant we got paid in equity as well as fees. So that's so I invented venture marketing. And Interregnum was the first, not the only, but one of a very small number of venture marketing companies. Oh. That's how that started. Oh, that's how you began. All right. So, so this is even more interesting to me, right? 
because you have an experience, you're, you're an experienced marketer and product manager, and you are familiar with technology, right? You had 12 years at Wang, right? 10 years at IBM, but you're not experienced on the venture side, right? So this is, this is completely new to you, nor have you ever launched or grown a business. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, you're putting out a kind of weaknesses there. I see that. In my, is it, what, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you in 1993. <laughs> so so you're, you're starting a business in a lane that you have some familiarity with, but not complete familiarity. Yes. All right. Yes, I, I, know, I, I, I think, well, that's a very, very fair and slightly chilling summary, yes. <laughs> okay. I just I find that... And your point is... <laughs> And clear, I mean, it, it worked out for you. So it worked. Out. So, so you start you start the business. What what's what's the first move? What what's the first strategic move that you made to to really get lift? And the name of the company once again. This is this is it, well. This is a problem for Americans. It was Interregnum. Interregnum. Yes. Well done. Well done. So so Interregnum is the name of the company, right? We start the company. We have a little bit of capital, just a little bit to uh, mm -hmm. keep the, the PA and also the office. So, so then what is the first what is the first revenue that comes into this company? Where does it come from? Well, I, think, I think it was Mel Morris. I, I think he back on that so long ago. But I think it was Mel. Mel had heard about me. He had also worked at Wang. So he knew about me from Wang. We had met a couple of times, apparently, although I don't recall uh, knowing him before. But he recognized that he was a genius. He is a genius. I'm sure he recognized it. He is a genius. He recognized that he was a technologist and a financier, but his marketing skills were, were less powerful. And I was available, and he asked me whether I could help him. So he was in a place called Derby, which is 150 miles, I don't know, 120 miles from London, and he became my first proper client and, uh, and still is. That's great. Your first client is still an, an existing client. So that first client... What did you do? Because, I mean, it's, you know, you're because the goal is, is what you take equity, you advise on the growth of the company, but then you're also, are you also bringing capital to the table? Yeah. yeah. So the first thing I did with Mel was, you have a, so most businesses don't have a strategy. So I, I say, if you're on a board, a board has three things they should do. They should make sure there's a strategy. They should make sure the strategy is being implemented, and they should make sure the company, the organization, is compliant with the laws and the regulations to which it's subject. Okay. Tragically, I would say most of the boards that I've been associated with have got those the wrong way around. So they think that compliance is the most important thing, and they never get around to execution or strategy. It's terrible. Anyway, I, what I do is to help people define the strategy. Where are you trying to get to? You, know, you want to get to the moon and back safely? Right, that's that's your objective. Let's work out how to make that happen. And then let's put in place the systems to make sure it is happening in the context of the entrepreneurial cycle that I talked about before. And there are various things that I can help you with, my expertise, of which marketing and finance are too. And there's certain things I'm no good at, like how to optimize the code. So, that, you know, but I know that the code needs to be optimized. So there are certain things you do in the strategic sense that, that, are, that are important. So that's what I do personally, and that's what now Restoration Partners before that Interregnum did for people. So for Mel, I helped him define, uh, he didn't need much help on defining where he was trying to take the business, but then how we get there, and particularly then filling in the, the, uh, the market sales and marketing pieces, but also we had to raise some money. And, that, and, the, and the chap in my next door bunker in my old office, uh, upstairs, the reason that he was there was a private equity fund mm. that invested 
And so we use their private equity expertise, which I didn't have. I mean, my accounting knowledge at that time was limited to running a PL, uh, didn't even really understand a balance sheet. Use their expertise to help broker a deal with a big venture capitalist in the UK. And we raised the money for Mel's first business, well, not his first, but the first business I was associated with him on, which then allowed him to build on and build on and build on. So the first venture marketing transaction, as I've defined it. Brilliant, brilliant. So Interregnum, did Interregnum go on to become the public publicly traded yeah. company? Yes. So was, was Interregnum the first publicly traded company on the FTSE led by a black founder? Well, it wasn't on the FTSE, it was on AIM, which is the junior, the junior market. And, and, you know, I have no idea. P- possibly. Um, I, although I say that, no, I think not. But I don't know. I don't know. That's, that, I have to say that's never been a lens that's mattered to me. But, it's a good, but it is a good question. Okay. All right. That, so, so this is interesting. It's never been a lens that's mattered to you. And it's therefore important to me. But it's not the most important thing by a large margin. And, I, and, I, and that large margin is key. Now, I say that safely in the United Kingdom. You know, in other countries, well, if, when I go to Nigeria, for example, they think I'm white. So actually, it doesn't mean anything in Nigeria. And in, in America, again, it's a whole different uh, game. So it's a very much a UK perspective. But so in, in Nigeria, it's not even my adjective, because I'm not. And in, in America, it's quite important that I am black, and people see that, because otherwise, they'll get the wrong impressions. So, so I'm a bit flexible on where it appears on the hierarchy of adjectives, but in my media in the UK, yes, it's true, but it's not a thing that I measure myself by. Right, fair. Very. I also don't hide it. Right. Not it. <laughs> It'd be hard to try to hide it, but I, I see, I see. All right, so so now Interregnum, publicly traded, right, grows to, uh, I, w- I would assume, a fairly large company because it is publicly right. traded. Briefly a fairly large company because we floated at the peak of NASDAQ. So the day we floated our company was the end of the Nasdaq boom and the beginning of the dot-com bust. So we so we had a huge market cap. We raised a large amount of money. We were all millionaires. It was all absolutely wonderful. And then it was a downhill journey thereafter. <laughs> I remember. I remember. So we, we survived through 2002 by doing clever corporate finance, uh, which I used to despise. And I learned everything I know about corporate finance in 2002. I can't remember anything about the year. It was horrible. <laughs> but you but learned corporate finance. Yes. Yeah. And we survived. So like the guy, actually, this once happened to me. I once fell down skiing. I once fell down a, a long way down a mountain. I can't actually remember very much about the falling down. I remember the beginning and the end. And a, a tiny bit. Of, 2002 was a bit like that. Yeah. But I survived. Yeah. This is a commonality among everyone I'm interviewing is that those tumultuous times, there's not a lot of recollection because the focus is, is getting out of it, not necessarily yeah. why am I in this? So, yeah. so that makes sense that you can't really recollect, okay, 2002. So how do you get from 2002 interregnum to restoration partners today that's, that's thriving? Well, well, the sad thing, and this is another lesson for entrepreneurs, is that, that, that effect from the euphoria of going public to the awfulness of 2001-2, to the exhaustion of having survived, but bruised and battered. You know when you see, you go to a tank museum and you see all these tanks you know, with holes in the side and dents. That's basically where we were. The, the, the joy and the love and the team, the, it had got, the, the, the joy and the love had gone out of the team. The group of people that had taken us to this peak, actually we didn't really like each other anymore. I mean, a couple of us did, but mainly it just wasn't, it, it just wasn't the same thing. We were... So low. I mean, it was just awful. So, 
so what we essentially we did, we hired in some new managers and all of us departed without licking our wounds. And the company morphed from being a technology merchant bank into being an oil and gas merchant bank and moved on elsewhere. And, and it actually did quite well. And I was able to sell my shares and give them money for the library. So it's, it was a happy ending in the process, but it was a horrible journey. So that was, that was a, I can't say that was a, a unified, a, a, an unqualified success. Right. But it was a really interesting trip. V- very much so. So you leave Interregnum. Where's your self-esteem? Um, oh, it's not so bad then, because I've done quite a lot by then. But it's on the way down. Uh, but I'd learned a lot of lessons from the first time. That's probably when my self-esteem hit rock bottom. And I resolved never to be in that position again. So when I left Interregnum and started Restoration Partners, I have a Rolodex of about 5,000 names. And a large number of them are in the A category. So, no, self-esteem is in a much better place then. So you, throughout your career, since Wang, strategically focused on your network and the contacts and building relationships. It's, it's, it seems like that was always at the forefront of your mind. as you were- well, Merchant banking is those three things, remember. Clever people, powerful network, access to capital. So absolutely. And the network is a, is a key piece. Because if, if you can't connect the guy that's building railways in Patagonia with the man that's making steel in Sheffield and the shipper who's got the boat to get the stuff there, you, it doesn't matter how clever you are, you want to make it happen. You've got to know them. They've got to trust you. So, that, yes, absolutely, that, that network is, is, I'm sure it is to everybody in all things, but certainly in the business that I'm in, the network is really important. It's really important. So now also leaving Interregnum, uh, we won't talk about money, money, but did you have enough to retire at that point or you didn't have enough okay okay so 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 what why did you start your own why did you start another company after all of what you just went through versus going off to to work for someone else at that point well the imp remember he'd asked me all those years before so yeah i'd uh, do it again i mean uh, with all i've learned have another go and it's obviously gone a lot better the second time than the first time. <laughs> Absolutely. So Restoration Partners right now, you gave us the overview, but but clearly Restoration Partners has done quite well, roughly the same model, right? Would you say? The only difference is we're not public. And and that with the benefit of hindsight. Well, we couldn't have raised the money we raised if we hadn't been public. So with the benefit of hindsight, actually, there was no better way of doing it then. So how long ago was Restoration Partners founded? 2006. 2006. Okay. Yeah. So we're talking about, let's say, we'll call it 15 years, you know, yes, well, 14 years in charge. Well, plus tax, yes. Yeah, yeah, plus tax, right? So 14 years, may I ask, how, how, old are, how old are you now? Well, 14 years older than I was when I started. <laughs> <laughs> how old were you when you started? What kind of trick question is that? <laughs> I'm, I'm checking to see that good Cambridge education. No, how... <laughs> How so? How old were you when you started Restoration Partners? Uh, very good. Well, well played. And obviously, fourteen years younger. I am going to be sixty-nine in a month's time. Okay, sixty-eight for those who struggle with the math. All, all, all right. So, so now, here's here's what I find. You just express shock and say, "Gosh, you don't look it." No, I, <laughs> I thought I was much older. I was I just I need a. You don't. You don't. You don't. You don't look it at one. Day. Actually, you're not going. Seventeen minutes. Too long. It's too long. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll. I'll. I'll come back later on that one. But can I say so? So you're 55, starting Restoration Partners. 
This is something that I want to emphasize to everyone listening, everyone watching, is that it's clear to me that Restoration Partners, the last 14 of years of your life, has really been the foundation of the legacy that I think you'll have, right? Mm -hmm. Not only about Restoration Partners, but I still also want to talk about your work with Her Majesty. And so this is important because I think so many of us believe that we, you know, we need to have made it by 20. We need to have made it by 30. We need to have made it by 40. Here you are 55, really starting the business that you're going to now, you know, hang your shingle on, so to speak, right? At, at 55, you started. Now, Restoration Partners has done quite well, right? We don't know what the numbers are, but I know they're in the millions upon millions upon millions in terms of assets. Um, so wildly success, wild success, we'll say, but talk to us about the sir and Sir Kenneth Eliza, because this is something that I didn't quite understand when I first got to the UK, because I always said, how do I become a sir? Like, how, 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 how can I do this? Can you buy your way into this? But no, you do some incredibly important work as the Lord Lieutenant mm-hmm. of London, correct? Mm-hmm. Lord Lieutenant of London. So what is that for those of us who are unaware of how important that role is? Well, the first thing is it's the Lord Lieutenant, because this is England, oh, not America. Okay. So, <laughs> and it's a, it's a 500-year-old role. So King Henry VIII decided 500 years ago, apparently, obviously he predates me, that there was too much power given to the sheriffs in the counties as his representative. And he created a new role, the Lord Lieutenant, which was essentially a military role. And the job of the Lord Lieutenant in the 16th century was to quell riots and raise the army. So a county army, the Lancashire Regiment, would have been raised by the Lord Lieutenant. And until early in the 20th century, that's how it was done. So it sustained for 400 years. The Lord Lieutenant was essentially a military figure, probably a member of the House of Lords, but was the king, the monarch's representative in a particular county. And every county had and has one. So... Obviously, in the 21st century, I didn't raise the army or quill riots, nor do any of my colleagues. Uh, those, those are past and more professional discuss uh, organisations to do that. Well, the Metropolitan Police definitely, we've outsourced raising the army, but that's another point for another moment. So anyway, we don't, don't do that anymore, but we do maintain the essence of that original responsibility, which is to uphold the dignity of the monarch and the monarchy in our county. So every county, 98 of us uh, in the UK, has a Lord Lieutenant. And we all do the same thing, but obviously customised for our particular county. What does upholding the dignity of the monarch mean? Well, essentially, I mean, well, first of all, it's whatever the Queen would like me to do. So let's be clear here. Uh, I, I'm absolutely her servant. But, but there are certain things that we are required to do by statute. So uh, uh, as an example, well, let me give two examples. Whenever a member of the royal family visits my county on an official visit, so not on a private visit, Either I or one of my deputies is there to greet them to, and to welcome them to the county and to make sure that their visit, opening the museum, speaking at the conference, whatever it happens to be, goes well, and then say goodbye to them when they leave the county. I need to make sure that the host organisation is ready, welcoming, relaxed, because it's it's a most amazing effect when a member of the royal family comes to visit. They are Unlike celebrities or politicians, there is a there's a magic to a member of the royal family. They're they're informed, they're interested, they're engaged, and and they sprinkle this pixie dust, which is key. 
probably only going to see them once in your lifetime as the host organization. So it's hugely important that that goes really well. So a big piece of what one has to do as a Lord Lieutenant is to make sure that that goes really well. But we also, for example, on behalf of the, the monarch, present medals. So we have this hierarchy of, of uh, medals, and the British Empire Medal is the entry point of the Order of the British Empire. It's British Empire Medal, MBE member, OBE officer, CBE, etc., up to knight and grand knight and so on. And then in between those two things, there are lots of other activities that need to be done, visiting, giving out awards, Queen's Award for Enterprise and so on, we present. So all those things, they're essentially to keep the, the dignity of the monarchy respected within the county. The only difference between London and all the other counties is scale. And obviously we are eight and a half million people and County Andrew is two and a half thousand people. So, so the job is tailored, it's, it's implemented differently depending on... on um, on the, on the nature of the county, but the basic principles are the same. Incredible, incredible. So the sir, is that because you've received, is that you being knighted? Is that the sir? Yes, so the sir is me being knighted, but it has nothing to do with being Lord Lieutenant. I, 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 being Lord Lieutenant is an honor. I, I was given my knighthood by Her Majesty uh, be, for the things that I've done in business and in philanthropy. So being fired from a FTSE 100 company was actually in a campaign to improve standards of governance in the city of London, for example. So, so I've done quite a few things that are uh, uh, or memorable, certainly for me, in the business world, and I've done a lot of philanthropic things. So I was given a knighthood for services to business and philanthropy. Look at that. Look at that. And I know this is not your lens, but from what I understand, you're the first and only Black Lord Lieutenant. Well, it's more complicated. Um, not wholly true. I'm the, I am the first and currently only British-born Black Lord Lieutenant. Actually, I may not even be the first now. I certainly I may not be the only now. Um, but there have, been, there have been non-white Lord Lieutenants before me. So, that, so I can't claim to have broken any moulds there other than being British-born, which is quite important in the message in the UK to young Black people who drink the Kool-Aid of what's happening in America and think that, that you just can't make it to the top of, of my country. And I, I you know, I, I have, and so, and I have partly through my own efforts and, and much more by the efforts of others. And the point, therefore, is nobody can say it's not possible. Now, it might be really difficult, it might be rare, but it's certainly possible. Just as Obama, although I wouldn't draw any comparisons between the two, because his achievement is beyond remarkable, but just as Obama made it to be the first black president of America. But once you've done it, nobody can say it's not possible. Now, Making it happen again is much more difficult in a particular America. I don't want to judge America, but the point is that the the the, the, uh, the the ceiling has been broken, which is the which is the point. Yeah. So, so I, the first British born is in key, but it, it just says so. Stop moaning about things and stop saying it's not possible. And guess, get on and look at yourself. There you go, Sir Kenneth Alyssa. This has been an honor, and I will say this: throughout this conversation, there's been this recurring theme of luck. Right. And I think you probably look at yourself to say, wow, I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. But but I will say now, truly knowing your story, I believe that you have created a whole lot of that luck. And I believe that your story is a story that many of us can be inspired by. We can look at it for instruction and we can look at it for motivation. And so it's an honor. And I greatly, greatly appreciate your time. Paul, you're really welcome. I, I just need to challenge you, though, on that rather Churchillian summary, if I may. Sure. Because I, my view is, the point about luck, is 
two, twofold. One is when luck presents itself, don't screw it up. That, that is so important. So many people miss the opportunity because they've got themselves in a group, into a grump, into a foul mood, into an assessment, an assumption, something, something, something. So when luck presents itself, don't screw it up. That's easy to say. The next bit, though, is how the hell do you not screw it up? And I think the answer to that is also quite simple, which is you should follow your heart and not your head. Your head is filled with rules and, and complexity and protocols and advice and things. I'm doing it now. It's all, you try, when faced with an opportunity, you try to work out in your head what the right things do. There's a, there's a spreadsheet that gets drawn out and people start to grade the positive and the negative. And so your heart is the only thing to follow. It's your heart that says, this is the person I want to marry. This is the job step I want to take. Is there something? You don't have to rationalise it. You can't rationalise it. The, your heart is what drives you. So the way you don't screw up luck is when faced with luck, listen to your heart and not your head, and you are pretty much bound to make the right step. There you go. That's all that needs to be said. That was epic. That was epic. And that is it. Sir Kenneth Eliza, and let me just say for the record, because I know I didn't go back and I promised I was going to go back while I was talking to him and say this, is that, yes, he's a good looking man on the outside and also on the inside. And I would be remiss if I didn't really endorse the Alito Foundation, which is a group. It's really, it's a nonprofit group that Sir Kenneth put together. It was my honor this past year to serve as a mentor in that program. So many phenomenal students, young adults who are really figuring out how they can do well in business and do good in life. And I encourage you to support the Alito Foundation. I will be a lifelong supporter of it. And you can find more information at alitofoundation.org.uk. That's A-L-E-T-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org.uk. And that is it, folks. Another episode of Better With Paul in the Books. I can't wait to talk to you on the next episode of Better With Paul.